actually landing the plane uh, today uh, in our series in 2 Timothy, and I hope that you have enjoyed it. I have been so challenged and stretched. It's four chapters, and it's changed my life uh, as we've dove into this letter that Paul writes at the end of his life. And, uh, you know, Paul's in a prison, and he is writing uh, to his protege, Timothy, who he's been serving alongside of for almost 15 years. And, uh, and we've been talking about how Paul is essentially giving tools, and we called the series Equipped, and he's saying, you gotta have the right tools for the job. And so he lays out all of these different tools, and he talks about having courage and, and not being ashamed, being shameless, and, uh, and, 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 and he lands on this thing of, you gotta have partners. In this last section of the letter, he's talking about these different partners, and it's all about having the right tools for the job. But I realized something about a week ago. Having all the right tools isn't helpful if you don't know how to put those tools together and use them. So my mom was in town a few weeks ago, and because she's awesome, she bought me a new barbecue, right? So she buys me this new barbecue, and, uh, and it sits in a box for like a week, and then I'm out of town. And so, and so uh, I get home, and I'm like, all right, I got to put this barbecue together. This will be awesome. Now, listen, I'm not particularly mechanical, it's not my first skill set, but I think I can assemble a barbecue. So I lay out every piece, right? And I'm finding like mystery pieces, and I don't know who packaged this thing. And, there's, and I lay them all out across my yard. And I, then I get my instructions out, and I look at them, and I go, none of these pieces look like those pieces. I'm not sure how to do this. So I spend like a solid 15, 20 minutes just trying to find the first piece to get started. And what I didn't realize is I laid all the pieces out in the shade, but the sun was moving. And so as the sun moved, it started cooking all my pieces. And so my barbecue was already at like barbecue heat levels when I went to go start putting it together. It was like on fire. It took me almost five hours to assemble this barbecue. I did not know what I was doing. And like four and a half of those hours were just putting the base together and trying to figure out. I was working a long time before I realized I was just working on like the base of the barbecue. I'm like, this is so lame, right? And here's what, the instructions were crazy, and you know, you, you get those experiences. It was like Ikea furniture. I didn't know what I was doing. All these extra pieces are hanging out, and I'm just frustrated. But there's the thing. If you have all the pieces, and you don't put them together the way they go, you still don't have an effective use of the tools. And so, so where am I going with that? This is Paul writing about how to put it all together, how to take all the things that God's equipped us with and saying, you've got to put this together and live it out. And here's what's so incredible. Timothy bought into this. The church that Timothy was pastoring that Paul started in Ephesus, they bought into this and they began to believe that if they put these tools together, they could actually make a difference, an impact, not just in their community, but in eternity. And here's how I know, because they bought into this, the next generation of the church sprung up stronger. And then the next generation sprung up. And then the next generation sprung up all the way until we're reading and learning about what God equipped the church to do in South Hill, Washington in 2018. That's crazy. This Jewish man from prison wrote a letter and it is shaping the way we reach people today. That's the power of knowing how to use these teams. And so Paul, as he ends this letter, he starts talking about the teammates the teammates that were with them. So if you have your Bible, you can get to 2 Timothy chapter 4, and I'll, I'll, uh, I'll be there in a moment. I'll start in verse 9. But he starts talking about the teammates that are so important and the partners that he's had. And I don't know if you've ever been on a, on a crummy team. I've been on some crummy teams. I've been on some teams that didn't win any games. I've been on some teams that didn't accomplish the goal 
I've been on some work teams that had to get disbanded. I've been on some school teams that couldn't get the project done. There's nothing worse than being on a horrible team, but there's also nothing better than when you have a great team. When the teammates around you, you're, you're all completing each other's sandwiches. Someone caught my frozen reference there. Yeah, I got little ones. You're completing each other's sentences. It's connecting. You're on the same wavelength. You don't have to explain every single thing. You just point and the person goes, yeah, let's do it. Everyone feels like they're doing their role. You know what it's like to be on a great team also. I've been on some teams that, that started off great. And then people who said they were going to do things didn't do those things and then dropped the ball. And you thought big high hopes and then it fell down and weakened as it went. And Paul has experienced all of those things in his ministry journey and is taking us through this tension of how do we finish well. And what's amazing is in his last and final moments, in his last and final letter, he's writing about what's lastly on his mind. And he's talking about the teammates and the partners that he's had. And he's talking about how the difference and the impact that some of those things have made. We were down in uh, LA uh, just a few weeks ago, just for a couple of days for our, our, our regional pastors conference. And the pastor there, Darren Whitehead, who was speaking is a, uh, out of uh, Nashville, Tennessee now. He used to be out of Willow Creek in Chicago, but he planted a church there. And he was telling a story about, about getting the church up and running and looking for teammates. And he had a teammate with him, another pastor, and they were praying and they decided they were gonna have a meeting at the house. And, and uh, then they realized that more people were showing up than, than they expected to show up. I'm gonna paraphrase the story, but, but they realized they were gonna have to divide and conquer in order to, uh, to get it done. One of them was gonna have to prepare remarks, but the other one was gonna have to get tables and chairs. And uh, since they were just getting started, they didn't have access to tables and chairs. They didn't even know how to get a hold of tables and chairs. And, and a short version of a long story, they split up. And, David, and, and uh, Darren's writing a, a message, remarks for, for gathering this first team of people who are going to be committed to being on mission in their community and reaching people. Believe it or not, they planted a church that was uh, passionate about reaching millennials for some reason. Come on now. Come on now. Love me some millennials. Almost all of them. <laughs> you can cut that from the podcast. Um, <laughs> I'm teasing, I'm teasing. And uh, so anyways, Darren's riding and his buddy is uh, on, on a journey for tables and chairs and he drives by a U-Haul truck with a back open and he sees in the back of this U-Haul truck tables and chairs. He's like, I wonder if this guy has a tables and chairs business. So he just pulls over and knocks on the door and says, hey, I see your U-Haul truck. You got tables and chairs. We, we, you know, can we borrow them? And the guy's like, what do you mean can you borrow them? He's like, well, can we rent them? What do you do? And, and uh, the guy says, well, what are you doing? He says, we're, you know, we're doing a church and, and it's our first meeting and we don't have any tables and chairs. And the guy says, essentially, if, if I can come to the meeting, then you can use my tables and chairs. And so he comes and they set up tables and chairs and Darren speaks. And, and at the end, he starts talking about how we're going to need partners in this journey to reach our, our neighborhood, to reach our, our community, to make a difference in people's lives. And, and that everyone's going to have a different level of partnership. And some of you are just going to kind of check things out and, and, and put a toe in, but you're not really going to be in. And some of you are going to be in and you're going to say, this is how much I have. And some of you are going to be all in. And this is going to be the cause of your life. God's going to ignite in you that you're going to make a difference in this neighborhood. And it's going to be the primary cause of your life. He goes, who hears that from the Lord? And the first guy who raised his hand and moved forward was the tables and chairs guy. He said, I'm all in. And Darren said, this is a miracle. We didn't know this guy 12 hours ago. 
He's tables and chairs guy. He doesn't even know his name. He's the first guy who's committed. And tables and chairs guy goes, you know what? You think it's a miracle that I'm here committing and, and brought tables and chairs. I think it's a miracle that I was sitting in my house having just gone through a divorce, lonely and wondering what to do with my life, and God sent a pastor to my door. Building teams, coming together, finding partners, reaching out and making a difference is how the gospel spread. It's how people experience the, the, the reality of God's love for them. How will anyone know if no one tells them? So Paul is talking about his teammates and he's talking about people who were all in. He's talking about people who were part in, people who came in for a little season and then bounced out. And if you are in the, uh, in the word with me, I'm in 2 Timothy chapter 4, verse 9. And he's writing to Timothy and it's his final remarks. And he says, do your best to come to me quickly. Why is he saying this? Because he knows his time is short. Most likely he's in a hole in the ground. That's the way that they did those prison cells at that time. He's probably as many, I read, as, as 20 feet down potentially in a hole in the ground. He's either writing this letter or he's dictating it to somebody else to write. We know Luke was with him and Luke was quite the author. So Luke might be writing it for him. And he's writing to his protege, Timothy, his son in the Lord, the person that he loves and has discipled and gone uh, through life with and ministry. And he's saying that if you want to come say goodbye, you're going to need to come pretty quickly. It's imminent that my end is about to happen. Now is the time. He just got done saying, be ready in season, out of season, and talked about every, you're going to always be in a season. But in this season, if you want this moment to have this connection, do your best to do it quickly. Some of us just need to hear whatever the dream is God put in you, whatever the sense of urgency God put in you, do your best to get there quickly. Just do it quickly. Don't drop everything this moment, but do your best to get there quickly. And now he begins to talk. He's going to talk about nine different people here in, 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 in this passage. And so I'm going to run through it a little bit. But he says, uh, verse 10, he says, For uh, Demas, because he loved this world, has deserted me and gone to Thessalonica. Hold right there for just a second. Demas shows up in the scriptures quite a bit. We see him at the end of, I think, Colossians. We see him at the end of, uh, 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 what was the other letter he's at the end of? He's at the end of a couple of Philemon, that's what it was. He's at the end of Philemon. Um, Paul's thanking him, <clears throat> talking about him as a co-worker, someone who, who started the journey with him. And Paul says, Demas deserted me. He traveled with me. He ministered with me. He went with me on the journey. But now I've been in prison. Now Nero's the emperor. Rome has burned and he's blamed the Christians. There is a bounty on the head of Christians. There is a, a, a need to not be ashamed of the gospel. They're, they're trying to snuff out the gospel. We're gonna have to stand up for what we believe. I've been imprisoned. I'm enchained. And on my team, Demas bounced. Why did he bounce? Well, he was in love with the world. He was in love with the world. He didn't want to give up whatever the world had to offer him. Then he says, Christians and gone to Galatia and Titus to Dalmatia. We don't know that they left for the same reason as Demas. It seems like Demas bounced because he was in love with the world. These guys were just on mission. 
Paul's in prison. They got work still to do. So they went to the places where they're assigned and they're out and they're pastoring. These are his fellow workers, people who were on the journey with him, partners with him. Some of them left and went to the places that they were supposed to go. Here's one thing that you should always hear, church person. We're all on assignment. You're on assignment. I'm on assignment. We're all on assignment. And we're in this ever changing landscape of hearing the Holy Spirit and obeying. And for some of us, we're assigned and we run and Timothy's been now 10 years or so in Ephesus. He's on assignment and he's there. But, but, but these others, Titus, he had an assignment and it was time to go. As a church, as the church, we're supposed to be senders. We're always supposed to be senders. If you have a mission, if you have a call, and you have a design in your life, if it's to be uh, uh, here and rooted and, and make this thing, then go. If you're supposed to go be a missionary, go be a missionary. If you're supposed to start a church, go start a church. If you're supposed to start a company, start a company. Do the thing God's called you to do. We're senders. Paul's like, listen, I'm all alone right now. Come quickly. I'm going to need somebody because some people bounced. And some people are on mission going where they're supposed to go. Verse 11. Only Luke is with me. I read that and I was like, wah, 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 right? Ah, I'm stuck with only Luke and he's talking my ear off. He's the same four stories. No, no, that's not what it was. <laughs> he's just clarifying on the team. It's awesome that Luke is with him. He's just pointing out they have had a team everywhere they've gone, tra traveling from city to city, from town to town as they've been ministering. Paul gets a lot of the attention because he wrote the letters and led the team. So we know about Paul, but Paul wants you to know he has been rolling with the team. That's how Jesus modeled it. That's how Paul models it. That's how the gospel spreads. People come together as partners. They bring their tools. They bring their skill set. They bring who they are and they give it away so that the gospel will spread. And he's like, of my team, I lost one. He deserted me. I sent a couple off and I only have Luke with me. Now, then he says something awesome. Get Mark and bring him with you because he's helpful to me in ministry. And if I had time, I would take you on a journey of Paul and Mark uh, because Paul and Mark didn't always get along. They started together. They fought. Paul thought Mark was kind of a, a, a how would I say it? Yeah, mama's boy for 80 cat. He just wasn't, he wasn't willing to do the thing. He thought Mark was weak. I'll say it that way, right? And so he's like, I don't want Mark anymore. And he took Silas and, he, and he's like, Mark's not even helpful to me. And so here he is at the end of his ministry. And he's like, remember Mark, he's helpful for me. Bring him with you. So kind of the, the full journey that he goes on with Mark is a whole other story of redemption and seeing people's true value, even if their skill set and gifts is different than yours. But he says, get Mark and bring him to you. Why? Because he's helpful to me in my ministry. Paul, at the end, he's writing letters and he's talking about people who have been on the team and he's saying some of them finished well and some of them bounced. And some of them weren't useful but became useful. I sent Tychicus to Ephesus. I sent Tychicus to Ephesus. Why is that important? Because where's Timothy? He's in Ephesus. He's like, you're coming to me. So I sent somebody to cover your areas of responsibility and to shepherd. He's probably the person who's bringing this letter and traveling, and he's saying, hey, I sent you somebody so that you could be freed up so that you can go, because everybody needs a sabbatical and a break every once in a while that's in the grind of doing their life and ministry. We'll just throw that out there. He says, I sent you somebody to cover. He's deploying resources. And then verse uh, 
13, this is awesome. When you come, bring the cloak that I left with Carpus and Troas and my scrolls, especially the parchments. And it seems like he did this intentionally. He left some things behind, probably knowing that he was facing arrest and that they would take whatever stuff he had and strip him of it. And, you know, we, we, we get a picture of Jesus and they're, they're gambling for his cloak and his supplies. So, so Paul left those things behind. And if you know anything about this ancient time, especially someone who was traveling a lot, your cloak was kind of your lifeline. It wasn't just your cloak the way we think of a jacket that we might forget somewhere and leave on a chair at church and not pick it up for six months until we threaten to give it to the goodwill. And then you go, oh, that's my chair, right? Like, it's not like that. This cloak was a lifeline. They traveled. It was their primary blanket. It was a sleeping bag. It was how they stayed alive, how they kept their possessions and their wealth with them. It's how they survived. And so when Jesus says, you know, give them your cloak, it's a big deal. And Paul is now in prison. He's maybe 20 feet underground, And at the very least, the seasons are changing and it's getting colder and he's recognizing it's going to be difficult to not have my cloak. But more than that, he says, I'm gonna need my cloak, but you know what I'm really thinking about that I'm missing? I'm missing my parchments. I'm missing my letters and my scrolls. You remember the scriptures did not exist as a Bible for another 400 years. But Paul was acquainted with the Old Testament and the, and the things that, that he had studied as a, uh, as, a, as a good little Pharisee boy growing up. And he wanted his scrolls and he wanted his scriptures. And here's the thing I want you to catch. He knew that in his darkest moments, it was still important for him to be in the presence of God, studying and growing and developing into the person God wanted him to be. He wanted his scrolls. He wanted his stuff with him. Think about... <laughs> The uh, irony that we talk about sometimes about how often we, we don't want to put a Bible in someone's hand until they're in Paul's situation, until they're locked up and then we want to give them a Bible no matter what. But Paul models, hey, I need, I, need, I need the word of God with me. I need my library and I need to study and I need to keep growing. And we don't talk enough about the fact that if you really want to grow, if you really want to become more like Jesus, you're going to need to get into your word. Like coming on Sunday, we have this interaction and it's awesome. But if you never get into your word, you will be disproportionately weak. It's available to you. And we don't push on this like we should. Right? Church world, we used to just push on this. When's the last time you're just like, you know what? I need to clear the deck today because I haven't spent much time in the word of God. I just need to spend some time. I need to get away. I'm going to pray. I'm going to hear his voice, and I'm going to spend some time in the Word and let the Word just shape me. At uh, Willow Creek at the time, it was the largest church in the nation. They did a big survey, a big study, and um, they actually released the results, and they called it Reveal. And it was about how this church of some 20,000 people had discovered something, that they had grown incredibly wide, but very, very shallow. And that they had discovered that disproportionately, if they wanted to make disciples, followers of Jesus, that in the top piece of what was important and critical and missing was just biblical literacy, that people knew the word of God, that they owned their faith and knew the word of God. It's disproportionately helpful to you if you want to become more like Jesus, if you want to grow in your faith, that you get into the word of God. It just is. So, Critical, important. He says, I want my scrolls. I need all of those things. He, in his darkest moments, he was, what was he thinking? He was, what did he want with him? He wanted his people with him. 
right? He needed his people. He wanted Timothy. Wanted to see his face. He had some practical needs. Like, I need a cloak. It's cold down here. He's probably been beaten. He's probably naked. And he wanted his parchments. He wanted his study and his ability to grow and disciple and become more like Jesus. Verse 14. Alexander, the metal worker, he did me great harm. The Lord will repay him for what he has done. Whoo! Imagine that epitaph following you around for all of eternity. Alexander, the metal worker, that knucklehead, he did me great harm. But the Lord's got my back. The Lord will take care of that, repay him for what he did. Now, Alexander's a really common name in that time, so... There's other places where the name Alexander shows up in scriptures written by Paul, but we don't know for 100% sure if it's the same guy. But it's highly likely um, in 1 Timothy chapter 1, verse 20, when Paul says among them, he's talking about people who he's had to deal with in the church are Hymenaeus and Alexander. Listen to the language he uses, 1 Timothy 1.20. It won't be on the board, but he says, among them are Alexander, whom I have handed over to Satan to be taught not to blaspheme. Apparently, Alexander and Paul went to war. And Paul said, I have, you are so committed to wickedness and not changing that I can't even have, I can't put my hands on you anymore. It doesn't mean I want evil things for you. I'm just allowing you to choose the wickedness that you're choosing without me confronting it any further beyond this. I've just had to hand you over. And you know some people that you've run into that are this way. They have no desire to change. They're on a path of destruction and you've had to say, you know what? I don't want bad things for you. I don't want ill for you, but you are chasing down things that are destructive to your life. And in Paul's language, I just had to hand you over and allow you to do the thing that you wanted to do. And, and just like God saying, you know, hey, if you ask, I stand, you ask and it'll be answered. If you don't ask, then there's nothing like he won't force that on you. And Paul's saying, I can't force a new life and a new creation and a hope on you. And Alexander shows up time and time again and opposes him. There's a spiritual battling happen, battle happening here. Whether he knew it or not, Alexander's positioned himself to, to go after the, the ministry of God. Did he do it intentionally? Did he do it in arrogance? Was the enemy manipulating him? Sure. Yeah, probably. I've experienced some crazy things like that. I've had some physical threats and some interesting ones. You know, several years back, we had just started the church in Oregon, and, you know, we're gaining people. And one of our, one of our musicians, um, he, he goes by Bubba. His name's Corey, but he goes by Bubba. Um, Bubba's uh, about 6'6". Six, six. Um, we met him playing City League basketball. He's, uh, he's huge, and uh, uh, he comes from a, a rougher background, we'll just say that. <laughs> Uh, but now loves the Lord, and he was pretty, pretty new to kind of walking with Jesus. He'd been around church world for a while, uh, but he was new to really walking with Jesus, and um, he's played in keys for us, and he was at a, I don't know, guitar center or some musician store, and he meets this guy and invites him to church because that's what you do when you're excited and passionate about what God's doing and you're having interactions with people. You preach the word, and he invites him to church, and so this guy shows up, and, uh, and he's out there. You know, remember, we're close to Eugene, and, and uh, he's all the things you think of when you think of a Eugene person. <laughs> well, I didn't say it. I don't know what you're thinking. <laughs> he's just that guy. 
And so he comes on a Sunday, and, uh, and I'm speaking, and, and uh, afterwards he hangs out, and uh, he's you know, very excited, this, this uh, you know, young church that's just kind of gotten started, and he's got all these ideas, and he's talking to me about youth things, and he wants to invest in teenagers with his life, and all these things, and I'm thinking, I'm not sure you can pass a background check, but let's start with that conversation and, and go from there. And he tells me, he's like, I make videos, and I do things like that, and you should, you know, uh, you should see some of my work someday. I was like, oh, that's cool, that's great, whatever, Okay. So the next week happens, and uh, I'm preaching again, and uh, I can't even remember the heart of the message or what I was talking about, but afterwards, he's waiting for me as I walk off stage, and everybody kind of leaves, and usually you're talking to some people. He's waiting for me kind of in the hallway, and his face is really red, and he walks right into my face, and he's like, like almost nose to nose with me, and I'm in like pastor mode, you know, like, I, like I've been in, I've been in, I grew up in Antioch, California, East Bay, and so I've been in some tense moments, but it's weird to, it's weird to put that self on when, when you're in pastor mode, right, <laughs> and you just got done preaching, and I'm like, so what's going on, and, and, uh, and he's like, uh, he's really upset because I said that Jesus said you're going to have to make some decisions, and who you follow, and he's mad because he doesn't think you should have to make any of those decisions, and, and uh, you know, everyone, no matter what decisions you make, should be entitled to the same experience, and I don't know what he's actually talking about, because he's not all there, clearly, at the moment, and, uh, but he's getting in my face, and there's, like, almost snot bubbles. It's, like, gross, and then suddenly, from above me, six foot six above, I hear this, we don't talk to our pastor like that here. <laughs> and Bubba shows up like a Batman sliding in on a thing. <laughs> and I watched this guy melt literally right in front of me as he realized that Bubba didn't have the same pressure of wearing the pastoral mantle that I was carrying at that moment to have customer service turned on. And he was not concerned about taking this guy out in this moment. He left. <laughs> I want to tell you more funny stories. I should be careful. Let's just say I saw some of the videos that he produced, and they were what you think they were. They were crazy. They were all about how mushrooms can get you to Jesus and all kinds of fun stuff. So anyways, he was crazy, right? He was crazy. What happens, though, is in our world, we just meet resistance, and we meet up with things and principalities and spirits and things that are in the world that, that are just resisting us. And Paul's like, this guy was a resistor. And he did me harm, so be aware there's going to be some people who are resistors that are going to get in the way, and you're going to have to push through. Verse 15, you too should be on your guard against him because he strongly opposed our message. Paul lays it out. There's a few different kinds of people that you're going to face. And as he was journeying, he met up with a few different kinds of people. So I need, I need four volunteers that can help me with a very easy illustration that won't. Uh, yeah, come on up. Yeah, come on up. Two more. Two more who aren't embarrassed to just stand in front and hold a sign for just a second. Yep, I'll take you. Yep, I'll take you. There we go. All right, this is easy. This is an easy one, okay? So I'm going to give you a piece of paper, and it's got a flap, and I just want you to hold the flap. Nope, you, what do we got for? Okay, we got four. All right, hold the, hold the, no, there's a flap right here. Do you see this flap? Yeah, hold the flap. Just like that, all right? Hold it so that it's kind of stiff. Perfect. Can you guys see? Probably not. You have to hold it a little bit higher. Same thing. Just hold it. There's a flap on the bottom. You see that? You got to flip it, rotate it. Perfect. All right, same thing. Bam, same thing. Paul says, I ran into four kinds of teammates out there, four kinds of people. And everyone I went, I was journeying with, they all fit into one of these categories. You can kind of turn them so everyone can see them a little bit, right? 
Some of them started poorly and some of them started well. So hold it up a little bit higher. So he says there's gonna be some people who start well and end, we'll flip this up, they end well, right? They started well, they ended well. He says, Titus was with me and he started with me and he journeyed with me and now he's out doing the thing he's supposed to do. And there's gonna be some of us that start well and we end well. We, we meet Jesus, we get going and we're like, hey, I'm in. And then we're just gonna keep on going. He's like, that's awesome. Timothy, come back. You started well, you ended well. Then he says, listen, there's some of us, we start well, we end poorly. He says, Demas, Demas traveled with me. Demas went on the journey with me. Demas ministered and started churches with me. He was on the team. But when push come to shove, he was more in love with the world. Jesus experienced that even in his team. He had a Judas who started well, but didn't end so well. Then he says, there's some, they start poorly, but they end well. They end well. And you know people like this, right? <laughs> it starts hard for them. Some people get saved and they, they start journeying with Jesus. And it just isn't, it isn't easy right away. They're battling things. They're battling and, and, and fighting through. But in the end of their run, they stay faithful to God. They turn it around. And then there's some, they start poorly. They end poorly. They stay poorly the whole ride. He's like, Alexander, I had to hand him over because he kept blaspheming. He resisted me. I tried to give him some help. I tried to bring him in and he just made it his life's ambition to be a resister. Now listen, all of us fall into one of these four categories. You're in one of these lanes right now. Some of you are, some of you, listen, can I talk? I just feel like it has been one of my jobs as a pastor to talk about this starts well, ends well group for a minute. Ever since we, we started Rooted and we started having people share their testimony, I was, I am just broken by this reality that for some of you, <laughs> you want to switch? <laughs> just, hold, just hold on to it. It's okay. <laughs> just hold on to it. <laughs> it's not a representation of you. You are standing in the gap for a group, <laughs> right? But I want to talk about this starts well, ends well group because I have found, and this infuriates me as a pastor, there are people who feel like they don't have a great testimony, a great story to tell because they came to know Jesus as a, as a relatively young age and they stayed following Jesus their whole life. And so they go, I don't really have a testimony. I don't have a, because people like this testimony starts poorly, ends well, right? They, they want to be able to say, I was, I was hooked on drugs. I was, uh, you know, I, 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 I don't know. I was whatever horrible things I was stealing. I was robbing. I, you know, I led a criminal ring. Um, you know, we robbed hotels in Vegas and, and then Jesus showed up and, you know, there was a guy with a sign and it said, turn or burn. And I turned and now I'm not that guy. Like we want that story. Like, like that's a fun story to tell. Right. And we we're like, that's a better story. And I'm just telling you, that's an amazing, incredible story. This is the best story. This is a story you want for your kids. I want for my kids. This is a story I didn't get to live that I want someone to live. And we need people who live this story to tell this story. Why? So that we know that there's hope. That you can make a decision for Jesus. Meet Jesus early on before you went crazy. Everyone's like, right? Before you, you didn't have to touch the stove and go, oh, that's hot. And then jump on the stove, right? Like you didn't have to do that. And then God 
knocked you off the stove and you're like, here's all my scars, but I'm healed. You know, like that's a great story, but you don't have to have that story to have a testimony. You can have this story. This is a powerful story. We can believe in the next generation for them to have this story. I'm just saying. And Paul says that there's some, and man, they look great right off the bat. They show up. Everybody's got ties and proper, and not that ties are bad. I'm just saying everybody's like, everyone's put together and looks like they're following Jesus. All their Bibles are all highlighted and everything looks good. Everything looks good from the outside. But there's something along their journey. Their heart condition never transforms and never changes. And he points at Demas and he says he stayed in love with the world. And some of you are like, how does that happen? I don't know. Jesus picked 12 dudes and one of them, this happened. So statistically, it's not an anomaly. Yeah, I said that right. Antioch education coming out there. I gotta be careful with those words. It's not an anomaly. They started the journey and in well. And then there's gonna be some folks that are never gonna turn the corner. You spend your whole life praying, believing, but you cannot make their decision for them. So which lane are you in? Where are you at? Thank you, guys. You can put those down. Thank you. Give them a hand. Thanks for helping. Hopefully, hopefully visually that helps you see. Yeah, you can just drop them. We don't need to save them. Can I keep it? Sure. Sure. <laughs> All right. <laughs> you guys are having too much fun. He says, all these groups came through. Where am I at? Verse 16? Let's wrap this up. He says, at my first defense, no one came to my support, but everyone deserted me. May it not be held against them. Wow. Paul has been uh, tried once already. He had had a first defense. Nero is ruling. He's not actually in Rome. He's in Greece at this time. There's another prefect who's in Rome who's representing the values of Nero. And we know that in the past, he's been able to appeal to his Roman citizenship. We know that he has made a defense of his faith, a very uh, cogent one that's allowed him to avoid prosecution because he hasn't actually violated any laws. At this point, they just want to kill Christians. And so he's got no hope. As a result, no one stood with him. I don't know if you've ever been to a trial or in a trial or on trial. But standing there with no one who's with you, who cares for you, who's supporting you, who believes in you. Paul articulates the loneliness he feels in this moment. He's been abandoned or he's sent off everybody. He's like, I didn't have anyone to come to my support. Everyone deserted me. May it not be held against them. What a powerful statement, may it not be held against them. I kept looking at that thinking, that looks familiar. How many times did we see in the scriptures this phraseology coming up, especially in the New Testament? We know that Jesus on the cross looked down at those that had turned on him, many who had been in the crowd just a couple days before, screaming out Hosanna, now screaming out crucify him. And his words to his father as he looked down at these faces was father forgive them for they know not what they do now paul we don't know if he was there for that likely he was not there for that but he would be aware of that but then i got to thinking you know what paul was there for paul was there for stephen if you 
If you think about Acts chapter 7 and Stephen being martyred for his faith and it says Paul looked on and, and Stephen gives this incredible defense of his faith and this incredible apologetic and declares who Jesus is and, and looks out at a crowd and says, this is the guy you've been waiting for and you killed him just like you kill all the prophets. Every time someone tells you the truth, you kill him for it. And they're like, now we're going to kill you. And Paul's looking on and he's watching their cloaks because they had to take their cloaks off to throw rocks hard enough. I don't know if you ever like, you know, threw some pitches with a jacket on. It's not comfortable. So they've taken their cloaks off and they're throwing rocks at Stephen and Paul's looking on and giving approval. He's the authority that's allowing this to take place because of his positional authority before he's met Jesus. This is before he's met Jesus. And his first encounter that we know of with the Jesus follower where he shows up, he hears Stephen as he's about to die cry out. Don't hold it against them, Lord. What a powerful, powerful story. Don't hold this sin against them. Now Paul's at the end of his life. He's facing the death penalty. He's been beaten over and over again. They're likely about to decapitate him and execute him. And he says, people that were supposed to be with me, my team, my crew, they weren't there, but don't hold it against them. He's thinking about forgiveness and he's thinking about the state of his heart. He's thinking about becoming face-to-face with Jesus. Jesus, who said, if you, you've got to forgive so that you can be forgiven. You want to experience the grace that activates it is forgiveness. So he's dealing with his own heart condition. Verse 17, he goes, they all abandoned me, but listen to this, this is so good. But the Lord stood at my side and gave me strength so that through me the message might be fully proclaimed and all the Gentiles might hear it and I was delivered from the lion's mouth. Whoo! He says, all those folks that were supposed to be with me in that moment didn't make it, but there is someone who never leaves. He stuck with me and he gave me courage and I shared the story and all those that were there heard what I believed. And God saved me from the lion's mouth. Quite literally the lion's mouth, possibly. As they were feeding Christians to the lions at that point. Some would say the lion's mouth represents the anger of Rome or Nero. But quite literally, he could have been facing the lion's mouth and he did not. Verse 18. So the Lord will rescue me from every evil attack and will bring me safely into his heavenly kingdom. To him be glory forever and ever. And then he runs down this list, and I'll land the plane here. Greek Priscilla and Aquila and the household of Anisiphorus. Good luck with that. Erastus stayed in Corinth, and I left Trophimus sick in Miletus. That's a whole story there. He's traveling with someone, and he's sick. And some of you have been sick for a while, and you're like, why doesn't God just heal? God heals in the Bible, and he didn't heal every single person every single time. God heals when he wants to heal. And Trophimus was sick, and so Paul left him behind to get better. Not every prisoner got set free, not every person got healed, but the ultimate hope of Jesus was available to every single person. And the promise of heaven was available to every single person. Verse 21, do your best to get here before winter. Remember, he wants that coat. Eubulus greets you, and so do Pudens, Linus, Claudia, and all the brothers and sisters. So there's a crew here in Rome that are followers of Jesus. He's been talking about his traveling team up until this point. Now he's like, Don't, there are some people here not part of my team, but part of the family of God, and they all send their love and respect. I love that he's still doing life with somebody, even with his team gone. 
He's committed to it. The Lord be with you in your spirit. And grace be with you all. The primary message of his life ends with God will be with you and grace is available to you. The last words that he declares is God will be with you and grace is available to you. The promise of God is always the presence of God. The access to grace and wholeness and healing. It's so important that we recognize that we weren't designed to go through this life and this ministry alone. Paul traveled with a team. He ministered with a team. Jesus did the same. The enemy uses loneliness to attack all the time. Loneliness is his, one of his greatest tools. If he can get you to feel isolated, if he can get you in a place of, uh, of emotional uh, cutting off from others. You know, it's funny. The scriptures talk about us all the time as sheep. And it drives me crazy. One, because I don't know enough about sheep and the things I do know I don't like. As far as I'm aware, they don't have fangs and they don't fight. Even like a goat, like, seems tougher, a little bit tougher, right? Maybe it's not tougher. I don't, I don't know. But he calls us sheep all the time, and he talks about how he's the shepherd. But sheep are community animals, and they stay safe when they're together. And there's an enemy like a lion who's looking for who he can devour. And you know his strategy is to isolate a sheep, to pick off someone who's alone, who's not surrounded in the herd, in the pack, who's not integrated into the, into the protection of the shepherd and the protection of the community of the other sheep. And that's who he attacks. Some of you want to fight me on this. You're like, I don't need people like that. It's not that big a deal. I'm just telling you, according to the scriptures, you're wrong. You're just wrong. I mean, you can go all the way to the beginning. Genesis chapter 2, verse 18. It says, the Lord God said, it is not good for the man to be alone. So I will make a helper suitable for him. I want you to catch this. Adam is in the garden. They have not sinned yet. Everything is, he has control and dominion. The animals are obeying him. He's not working. He's just enjoying God's creation. In a perfect environment, God looked down and goes, it's not good to be alone. So no matter how much you try to convince me that your life is fine, that it's close to perfect as it needs to be, if you are not in relationship, if you are not part of a team, if you don't have people around you, this is why so much pressure, and, and Jeff shared about getting into community and doing life together. This is why that's so important. Can I just be, oh man, I'm gonna run out of time. I'm so fired up about this particular thing right now. I have been praying, can I just, as your pastor, like, like this town is hard to figure out. I've been here, like, in two days, I'll have been here three years. Okay, July 31st, we moved. And in three years, the one thing I know about this town, the one thing I know for sure that has been able to kind of start to make sense is there is a, almost like a principality of just isolationism and loneliness in this town where people drive into their driveways and don't hang out with their neighbors. They order things online, including food. And then they, they, they commute into their place of work. They hang around with people as much as they have to. And then they go back into their houses and they shut out the world. And then they engage and they got a thousand friends online, but they're not doing life with other people. And the enemy's looking around and just going, man, I got these sheep right where I want them. Not connected, not doing life in community, not with other people. 
not having support around them, not having all the pieces that they need. I'm right where I want them, start picking them off one after one after one after one. And I have been so frustrated trying to figure out what is the thing that the church can do to solve that until I realized what the church actually is. The church is not this building. The church is when a group of people come together and move together towards Jesus. That's when the church is the church. That's why it's so important that we do life together, that we get together. What happens in rows like this is okay. It's important. It feeds us. It gives us information and content. But if you want to grow and be a disciple, if you want to be the church, you've got to get in circles and look at people and say, say Ken, Ken, how's your life? How's it going? Have you found, you know, a, whatever. I don't know what I can say. I almost said like three things and I was like, <laughs> I was like, I don't know. Ken, hey, you guys should be Ken. He's awesome. Just saying, you gotta do life with people. And Paul's, Paul's at the end of his journey. He's like, I traveled and I did it with people. Jesus did it with people. He wasn't a lone warrior, right? Lone ranger. He got a group of people around him. They did life together. They ate together. They traveled together. They went on long walks together. They got out into the community. They made a difference together. Sometimes people let him down. And that was okay because he had people around him to pick him up, to support him. I want to give you three tools because I'm just going to put them up there really quickly so you can look at them. I won't preach much longer. Benefits of doing life in community. You have someone to help. You have someone to encourage you and someone to carry on the mission. I don't know. If you don't need help right now, you will someday. And if you're not in community, you won't have access to the help that you need. If you're not doing life with people who know you, who love you, who are in your circle, you won't have access to the help you need. It's not good to be alone. If you don't have people in your life, when that loneliness attack hits, when that confidence attack hits, when that competence attack hits, if you don't have someone to speak life and encouragement into you, you will be vulnerable to attack. You want to finish well? You need some people in your life. And listen, we need someone to carry on the mission. Paul's at the end of his life and he's like, man, all the things I gave my life for. I want it to go to the next generation and the next generation and the next generation. I want my kids to know and I want their kids to know and I want the friends of my kids to know and I want my neighbors to know. And if you're not in community, who's gonna carry on the mission? It's critical and it makes it go. Would you stand with me? Jesus prayed in John 17 for all of us and he was clear he said, my prayer is not for them alone. I pray for those who believe through their message that they all may be one just as you are in me and I am in you. May they also be in us so that the world may believe that you've sent me. He says, if we just kind of get to the place where we're all becoming one and we're doing life in circles and that's happening, the world will actually go, there's something different. They're not doing the model that everybody else is doing. It's actually different. And there's something there. And he says, that's how the world's gonna know when you want each other. That's weird. It's true. And so Paul ends this letter saying, this is, this is what made it work. These are the people who were important to me and, and come and see me because I'm in need of help and encouragement and, and, and carry on the mission and do all the things. And he's able to be at the end of his life saying, this was a win. And even though I'm facing the end, it was a win. I fought the good fight. I've run the race. So Jesus, 
I'm so challenged. In this next season, next week, we're going to go just love our neighbors and just love our neighborhood. <laughs> Literally the ground we're going to love. Why? Because you've planted us right here in this wild little spot where everyone wants to stay in their house and not do life in community. And, and, and we're going to battle that by just saying we're going to love your space. And then you're going to come out of your space and we're going to love you. We're going to demonstrate that love in this place. God, give us courage. God, I pray for those of us desperate to get out of this cycle and pattern of loneliness. Would you start cracking open doors? I pray for, for rooted groups. I pray for small groups. I pray for people who want to discover their ministry, getting to discover ministries and figuring out how they can do that. I just pray all these doors as they start to open that you'd start to raise up in this body warriors, impact makers, difference makers. Why? Because we want to see our neighborhood know you. That's the point because we've received this incredible gift and we want to give it away. And we need each other to do it. So I pray for strength, wisdom, direction, encouragement. Put a fire in us. Give us vision, I pray in the name of Jesus. We love you. We thank you and we worship you. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen and amen. I love you, church. I appreciate you.